Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Will Bunch examines how the explosive growth of higher education, which was intended as a public good after World War II, has unwittingly fostered the divides that currently plague American society. The, the book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It, is published by William Morrow and brings Will Bunch, the national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, to our show now. Welcome. Hi, Leonard. Thanks for having me on. Oh, this is right up our alley. Really fascinating stuff. But it, but oddly, you trace the evolution of American higher education since World War II in this book, beginning with an oddity, a unique college that your grandmother, Arlene Hammond Bunch, mm-hmm. created in PR, Illinois. Why begin there? Um, well, I thought, it was, I, I thought it was interesting because, um, you know, the values that she, uh, her little private college, Mid-State College in Peoria, Illinois, the, the bodies that they... Uh, you know, valued, which was um, taking taking the the middle class, and in this case, you're talking about Central Illinois. So you're talking about uh, the daughters of, of farmers or, or the daughters of caterpillar factory workers, and her belief that they could they could find a happier existence and a better life through education. And, um, you know, she was kind of an evangelist. She, she and uh, also also my grandfather, who uh, ended up working with her to, to kind of help sell the school, uh, you know, would go around to these small towns and sit in the living room with these mm-hmm. farmers and try and convince them to send their daughters to Peoria, which was seen as uh, Sin City, uh, mm-hmm. probably, probably accurately, to be fair. But, um, um, and, uh, um, this was this was that this was the, in the you know the, the the school really grew in the 1960s and 70s, kind of kind of in the heyday of when college was still the American dream. When um, uh, you know the idea that that you could do better than the next generation was college was seen as the embodiment of that promise. And uh, in, in the 21st century, we've gotten away with that. So I thought I thought telling the story of my grandmother was kind of a neat. Neat way both to introduce myself and who I am and who my family is and what education meant meant to my family uh, because I thought it was so illustrative of what education has meant for so many families in this country. Was it the strongest determinant of whether voters were likely to support Donald Trump in 2016, whether or not they'd attended college? Didn't many of them express a kind of a loathing toward what they saw as the knowledge economy of clustered educated elites um, they, they did you know there was a, there was an interesting study after the 2016 election uh, you know look at, again looking at the factors that drove people to vote for who they did and um, this one researcher found maybe the biggest factor among Trump voters was something that he called economic fatalism uh, uh, these people told told the surveyors that um, they, they saw college for, for their family as a risky gamble that they didn't want to get involved in. But at the same time, they felt like they were, you know, shut out from economic opportunity, that, that, that they didn't have a pathway mm-hmm. to a better life. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think this sense of there's a system and it's set up for elites and it's not set up for us um, 
uh, fuel, fuels a lot of resentment. You know, it's, it's, it's obviously not the only factor. You know, we, you know, if, if you follow the political debate, there's, you know, th there's there's certainly race and gender and and and, and diversity and, and things that are also um, getting people in the in the working class. But having some extremists. Haven't some extremists yeah. even talked about a new civil war? Uh, is that related to what we're discussing here? It, it is. It is, which is crazy. But um, uh, I, I think I think there's no doubt that there's a huge a huge fault line in America right now that that people see themselves as part of a tribe, you know, and in one tribe, the tribe that tends to vote democratic, it tends to live in cities or, or certain types of certain types of suburbs. Um, and, and it tends to be people with college degrees. And, and the other on the other side of this chasm, you have people who tend to live in rural areas or these smaller cities that um, uh, used to be very industrial and have lost so many jobs. Um, uh, with with factories closing down, um, uh, and these are and these are folks uh, without without college diplomas, and um, uh, the bitterness between these two groups, you know that that it's that it's not just that they have different, it's not just that they have different political opinions from me, but that they that they resent me or they look down on me or this other group this other group hates me for who I am. Um, you know th those are the kind of things that can turn. Political, must, uh, political misunderstandings into a much deeper conflict. Before World War II, especially during the Depression, didn't poor people tend to become Democrats while the Republican Party was the party of the more affluent? Has college attendance changed all of that? Uh, in, a, in a weird way, yes. I mean, it's funny because if you go back to the, if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, after FDR's New Deal, the Democrats were absolutely the party of the working class in America. And, and yet, at the same time, college was becoming, you know, um, a, 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 and, and listeners have to understand, um, there was just an enormous expansion in the number of people who went to college in this period. Um, uh, dur during World War II, the amount of American, the, the percentage of American adults who had a bachelor's degree was about 5%. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, by the end of the 60s, you had more, th more than 30% of people coming out of high school were going to college. So, you, so you're seeing like, a, a, you know, five or six fold increase in the number of people attending college and 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 college was 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 a liberalizing factor you know um you know people people were encouraged to get what was called liberal education which isn't necessarily a political term it's you know kind of general education you know studying the humanities studying the great thinkers you know lear learning to be a critical thinker yourself and um uh the people the people engaged in this process tended to adopt liberal viewpoints about things like racism in America or about America's foreign uh, interventions like Vietnam. That all happened in, is, is, seemed to happen in the 60s or so. But getting back to what you were saying, in the early 1940s, only 5% of Americans had a bachelor's degree. And before the end of World War II, people who attended colleges were mostly from affluent families that could afford the, the tuition. You've described it as a narrow pathway to success for the pampered elites. Did that all change after the war with the GI Bill and other things? 
Yeah, you know, the, the GI Bill um, was this incredible experiment in, in making higher education a public good, you know, with, with the government providing a college education for admittedly just a sliver of people, right? You're talking about returning veterans. Um, so, so women were largely excluded from this. And the program was administered in such a way that, uh, uh, you know, while, while black returning veterans were eligible, certainly, but they were kind of steered away and discouraged from participating. So, you know, it's a, it was a program that mainly benefited white uh, male veterans, but um, but still, uh, it, it, but, but it, it transformed yeah. colleges into places where less privileged people could attend. Yeah, and, exactly. And better but, jobs uh, than the, the, their the, parents. Wasn't that yeah, good? Uh, yeah. This, no, I, I was. I was. I just wanted to make that point. Um, uh, but I. But but the more important point is what it showed was that people from the middle class were college material, that people from the middle class could perform at the college level, that, that, that they wanted this type of knowledge. And people understood the benefits, you know, that, that it not only was it good for the economy, that it would help, that it would help the workforce develop into more of what we today call the knowledge economy. But people also thought it was good for society. You know, we were just coming out of the Great Depression in World War II. And, um, you know, people were giving a lot of thought to how do we avoid uh, the return of fascism, and, and you know, had, or, or communism, or, or any any kind of totalitarian uh, ideals. How do we promote democracy? And and liberal education was 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 seen was seen as a way to do that. And um, uh, you know, the the people who ran colleges uh, during World War II, the, the big schools like Harvard and the University of Chicago, uh, they they didn't think that that the GIs were going to be able to cut it on campus. Uh, the, the president of the University of Chicago said uh, these GIs were going to turn our campuses into, quote, hobo jungles, unquote. And instead, they were shocked, you know, at, at just how well these GIs did as students. And, and what that did was that just got the ball rolling because now you're flowing into the baby boom, right? The kids, the kids of these veterans, right? And, um, uh, uh, you know, if, if the middle class, if college is really a vehicle for the middle class to get ahead, um, uh, this next generation wanted to be a part of that. And at that time, governments were very supportive. Universities were expanded. They built new high-rise dorms. They hired, you know, hundreds of thousands of new professors were given jobs. And, uh, uh, you know, you had this, you had this virtuous cycle of expansion really, really up through the 1960s. So um, have colleges become symbols of elitism among uh, the people you call the left behind? Uh, we've been talking about the Republican Party now becoming a place that uh, attracting uh, people from the rural and rust belt uh, non-diplomat working class people who are mostly white. But recently, hasn't it also started to attract blue collar Latinos and other non-whites? Is it because because they come from shrinking factory towns, rural communities and and poor urban areas? Yeah, well, that that kind of makes sense when you think about it, uh, Leonard, because, you know, um, if, if, if the Democrats are going to identify more and more each election cycle as the party of the college educated. Uh, you know, people without degrees are going to start to wonder, well, what's in the Democratic Party for me? And I mean, the people asking that question initially tended to be the white working class. But more and more, more and more Latino voters are looking at this and saying, um, you know, I'm, I'm working class. Maybe the Republican Party reflects my values uh, more and more. 
But um, get, get, getting getting back to the first part of your question about about the resentment, um, uh, you know, is 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 college access started to get more limited in the in the 70s 80s 90s you know t- tuition really started taking off in the late 70s and um uh and we we kind of defined what higher education was going to be in this country and the way the way that a lot of our leaders defined it was that education was now a meritocracy that everybody everybody had an opportunity to, to go to college if they wanted to, but the people who would rise in this system were the people who really showed the most merit, you know, who worked who worked the hardest, you know, who were the who were the smartest, best and brightest people. And um, uh, that that's not exactly true. I mean, um, you know, mer- meritocracies can be rigged in a way, right? You know, the wealthy can spend thousands of dollars on SAT prep for their kids, and, and uh, the wealthy can benefit from legacy admissions programs, uh, uh, where, you know, where the kids of people who went to Harvard or Yale uh, get preference over, over, over other applicants. But this, this idea that, that America is a meritocracy now, and, the, and really whether, that whether you have a college degree is, the, is what defines the meritocracy. While 60, 63% of the American people don't have a college degree, and those people are out there, you know, many of them are, are asking, you know, do, do I, you know, do I not have merit? Are these people looking at me as worthless? Are they, you know, and, and the thing is, I mean, many of them are saying, you know, I'm not worthless. You know, I, you know, I go to church, I, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm, a, you know, I vote, I'm a good citizen. Uh, uh, you know, are these people really looking down on me just because, you know, I didn't, you know, for whatever reason, I didn't go to college like they did. And it, it's just a big driver of, of, of the resentment politics that we see. Getting back to that statistic you just cited, only 30% of the American adult population has a bachelor's degree, another third have some college, and a third have never set foot on a college campus. Yeah, wow. exactly. It's a, a third, just a third, 30, 37% actually right now is the current yeah. is the current number of uh, bachelor degree holders. So, so a little more than a third. And um, you know, like I said, there's there's this group in the middle people people who go to our community college system, which is you know kind of sadly underutilized, um, uh, or, or or people you know there's millions of people who go to college and just can't afford to finish. You know, they drop out and. Um, What's tragic is some of these people bar- borrowed money to pay for those first couple of years of college, and now they don't have a degree, but they have the debt. Uh, and, and that's one of the many drivers of our student debt crisis. And um, yeah, but, but you know, there's a third of people out there who um, uh, don't have the aptitude. You know, I mean, I mean, we're 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 a very free kind of libertarian-oriented country. You know, people aren't. Uh, people may be required to go to school t- until they're 16, but people aren't required to go to college. And some people don't want to do that. Uh, you know, one thing I explore in the book is if, if we're really going to solve the problems of young adulthood in America, you know, you can't just be fixated on only fixing college, you know, only fixing like the student loan crisis or you know, I, I mean, it, as much as I think it's great that, that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and some other politicians are talking about how do we make our public universities free, but, um, uh, it, and, and actually, and if you dig into their plans, they do talk about free trade school, for example, because that's got to be part of the solution, too. You, you need opportunities, whether it's trade school, whether it's 
you know, certificate level training that, that takes a year or two on certain skills that, that don't require you to sit in a college classroom. Um, uh, because, because having a comprehensive higher education thing where, where we're offering something to every person when they turn 18 and not, and not just the 37%, you know, not the 50% who are going off to try college. Um, uh, I think it is, is part of the way we can, we can try and fill this chasm, you know, and, and this great divide that we were talking about. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org is Will Bunch. His latest book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It, is published by William Morrow. When I attended CUNY schools in the 1950s and 60s, there was no tuition, just some lab fees, and admission was based totally on how well the applicant did on admission tests. Was that un, uh, something unusual to New York? Not, not totally. Um, uh, California was, was uh, California and New York City were really on the cutting edge. Um, you know, California had it kind of written into its state constitution that, that higher education should be free. And, um, you know, th this, this issue about whether, you know, college should be mostly free, like, as you said, there are, of course, there were some fees involved uh, uh, at these schools, but, but I mean, the cost was yeah, incredible. But mostly lab fees. Yeah. But now, yeah, right. now right. CUNY charges a tuition. Absolutely. And um, I mean, I mean, tuition at the University of California, uh, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but, you know, it's it's fairly high as public universities go. And um, uh, and, and these schools like Berkeley are, are highly selective. Right. You know, you, you mentioned the admission part of it. Um, you know, some of the some of these public universities have gotten very hard for the citizens of their own states to get into. I, in, in Pennsylvania, where I live, Penn State is uh, actually pretty selective. I know a lot of people have been turned, you know, kids in my area who were, uh, you know, were families, their kids were turned down by Penn State. Um, uh, so, um, uh, yeah, that, that whole system that CUNY embodied is really broken down. And, it, and it's really a shame, you know. I mean, I mean, you know, Leonard, as somebody who grew up in New York in the 50s, you know, you look back at the people who came out of New York City public high schools and, and, and went to schools like Brooklyn College or, you know, other, other parts of the CUNY system. And I'm, I'm talking about people like, you know, Bernie Sanders, Chuck Schumer, you know, and performers, me. You know, Carol to, King. I went yeah. to Brooklyn College as an undergrad and I went to Hunter as a grad school. Exactly. And, um, uh, you know, it was it was just really a great generation that really embodied um, uh, you know, the idea that, that this generation was going to do better than the generation before it. And it, especially in New York, it was kind of magical because you're talking a, a lot, a lot of these kids, as, as you know, were, were children of immigrants, you know, first or second generation. Um, and, and one thing that when, when college opened up in the forties and fifties, uh, what, what a couple of groups that really opened up for were, um, Jewish students, Catholic students, uh, because, you know, higher education before the 1940s, was so waspy, you know, it, it, uh, particularly particularly at the elite schools, like you know, the Ivy League schools, for example. And um, I mean, that was just unsustainable. And, um, and 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 so you just had this this spirit of that time of uh, possibility. Um, and New York City and California, I think, were two places that embodied it because because they made higher education a public good, which is you know what I argue for in the book. You know that we. 
uh, you know, get getting advanced education after age 18, whether it's college or trade school or, or some other kind of knowledge. And didn't you it, once attend a free trade school? <laughs> did I attend a free trade yeah. school? Yeah, I I actually went the other direction. I, I went to an I went to an Ivy League school, Brown. So, um, uh, uh, so 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 no. But I I, I did I did uh, I did visit I did visit a free trade school uh, for the book. Um, maybe, maybe that's yeah that's where I got that. Of. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Williamson School of Trade. It's, it's an amazing place. A um, uh, this multi-millionaire of the of the mid nineteenth century who had no other heirs left his entire fortune to found this school. Or, originally, it was going to be for orphans, but now it's for well, it's for men, which is kind of weird. But um, uh, but if you apply and get into this trade school, it's a it's a free uh, three-year program where people learn to become carpenters or masons or landscapers, uh, you know, or uh, uh, machine operators. And employers are employers are tripping over themselves to hire these kids. And you know, I'm I'm not I don't know how large a scale this could be replicated, but it does show that there's definitely a need for expanding these type of opportunities, um, you know, which, you know, which would do two things, you know, it would, it would give a, give a chance to more young people and um, would be another way of kind of breaking down this divide where going to college or not going to college becomes this kind of winner take all, you know, lottery or, or, or maybe hunger games, I, I call it at one point, um, uh, you know, which is just driving resentment. It's it's driving anxiety among our young people. It, it, it's really a broken system. Now, your first chapter begins in Gambier in Knox County, Ohio, and you suggest that to understand the college question, there's no better entry than Gambier, where Kenyon College is located. Is that because it's an elite college in a rather depressed area that voted largely for Trump? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to, to think about you know, when you talk about the divisions in America, here, here's a kind of a rare place where you see it played out. You know, it, you, you see the front lines is what I'm trying to say, you know, because because, you know, we're, we're so siloed. You know, if, if you live, uh, you know, if, if you live in a community like I do, like the western suburbs of, of, of Philadelphia, you know, you're you're detached from, you know, the, you know, you're, you're miles away from the people who are, are in what we call Trump country or whatever. But here's a, here's a place that, um, you know, the, the surrounding county voted 75 percent for Trump uh, in 2020. And um, so they, the people of the era resent being home to a world class institution that caters to elite students. They, they they don't trust they don't trust these people you know they they you know they are they're worried about things like the uh, uh, the uh, uh, LGBTQ you know reading programs that they have in the Gambier Library. There's people who go up there and protest um, uh, uh, during during the Trump years, and well, I guess I believe it's continued. But there's a um, uh, a lot of people from Gambier take place in this liberal protest every Saturday at the, at the town courthouse called Signs on the Square, where they hold up signs, you know, urging action on, on climate change or immigration reform. And, uh, um, uh, you know, by, by 2020, um, the, there were confrontations between them and, and, and town people who were, you know, showing up at these things, 
with guns, you know, and sure. circling, circling around the circle, you know, I mean, thank God, I mean, there was never a shooting or anything, but um, it was just a very int intimidating atmosphere. So, um, uh, yes, I mean, there's, I mean, there's absolutely distrust between the two groups, you know, the, um, the, the black and brown students at Kenyon feel that they're being racially profiled by the Sheriff's Department of Knox County. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, in the book, I just explore all these different ways that, uh, um, you know, th these divisions play out in, 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 in a rare place where people, people with such different worldviews have to confront each other on a regular basis. You mentioned that the GI Bill um, provided several million returning World War II vets with free university educations, uh, which uh, was treated, responded with some ambivalence by the, uh, the, the educators, but that it helped, the new money helped the colleges to build high-rise dorms, hire professors, keep tuition low. Um, and it was the golden age of college in America. So, so yeah. what, what went wrong? Was it uh, the, 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 uh, the tensions of the 60s? That was that was a huge factor, I, and I wouldn't say it was the only factor. You know, you had you had kind of the nation's economic problems factored in also, but but no, the political backlash was 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 a massive factor. Um, uh, uh, you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, this idea of liberal education that that we were going to that higher education could be a tool for promoting democracy. Um, you know, the, these generations uh, of people who went to college in the fifties and sixties really bought into that idea. Uh, you know, you saw it in the number of people who majored in subjects like um, sociology or, or English literature, you know, uh, enrollment in the um, humanities and enrollment in the social sciences really took off during those years. And, um, uh, you know, uh, UCLA did this national survey of college freshmen every year. And uh, in, in 1969, I think 80, 82% of college freshmen said um, the reason that they were going to college was developed to develop a meaningful philosophy of life, you know, as, as opposed to just hmm. you know, getting, a, getting a job and, and this is a path to making money, which, so which, it, became, it, which became the most, which, which would become the most popular answer by the 1980s. So what's so called it, credentialism. Yeah, well, well, you needed the credentials. Well, I, I, yeah, I want to talk about that, but just just a bit. But just to finish your question about um, mm -hmm. about the '60s, uh, you know, so so these people embraced critical thinking. They they embraced you know studies where they talked about democracy and and and, and kind of ideal societies, and they saw what was actually happening in the United States. You know, um, particularly what was going on in the South with the civil rights movement. That you know that the racial apartheid and 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 the violence that was taking place against. Mm -hmm people who were marching for civil rights. I mean, that was kind of the first trigger and that, and that kind of flowed into, uh, you know, massive opposition to the Vietnam War. And so, so there was a backlash from, from conservative elements in the society. And, uh, you know, nothing, nothing embodies the backlash uh, and nothing tells the story better than the saga of Ronald Reagan, um, who, you know, was was given little chance of winning when he uh, declared he was going to run for governor in, in the '66 California gubernatorial election, and uh, you know he, he rode two issues. One was the Watts riots, but the other one that I think was even more prominent was against students at Berkeley who'd been protesting the last couple of years. You know that he, uh, you know, made them out to be smelly hippies who were taking part in these 
unthinkable acts, uh, you know, under under psychedelic lights, and and uh, you know he he really whipped up his 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 rallies with you know with these scare monologues about what was going on at Berkeley and some of these other college campuses, and he promised that his governor he was going to straighten things out, and and he he won that election by a million votes, and um, uh, you know. Uh, Oh, you, do you see that as the kind of the beginning of the change? Because uh, as you point absolutely. out in the book, Reagan declared that intellectual curiosity on campus was no longer a public good to be supported by the taxpayer. Right. And uh, I mean, he wanted to impose tuition right away. Um, but, you know, I, you know, the, the idea, though, of, of, of free tuition in California was kind of so embedded in the state's ethos that he, he got a lot of pushback about on that uh, despite despite winning the election so um, uh, but he did he did raise those fees uh, uh, dramatically and he kind of set the stage you know intuition as we know did come around the time that he left office and um, you know and, and, and also he was behind some really harsh crackdown crackdowns on some of the protests at Berkeley like the, the People's Park incident in 1969 um, so um, uh, and you know, Reagan, Reagan's philosophy. I mean, he carried that all the way to the Oval Office. Um, so when he when he was elected president in 1980, uh, you know, was was a time when uh, the ability of these Pell grants, which were grants and not loans, and students didn't have to pay them back, um, uh, uh, the, the the size and thus the power of these Pell grants diminished right around the time the tuition was starting to increase, and 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 the philosophy of Reagan and his fellow Republicans was that if um, you know that this is this is a basic capitalist venture, you know that that college is an individual good for people who want to better themselves, and if they if they want to uh, invest in themselves, and if they don't have the money for tuition now, they can borrow the money, in, in, you know, just like a company borrows money to expand, right? Well, you know, with with the idea that it can be paid back against future earnings, and you know, I mean. That works out for some people, you know, somebody who goes to law school and, and gets a super high income, uh, pays their loans back. But, you know, is in the last like 20, 20 to 30 years, his loans have become the mainstay for everybody just to get a basic undergraduate education. You know, you've seen more and more people, uh, especially after the Great Recession in, 20, in 2008, um, uh, they weren't weren't finding that their jobs were bringing in enough income to, you know, that it, it, it had been kind of a bad investment, you know, that, that, that they weren't making enough to, to do more than pay the interest on these loans, that they were seeing their, they were seeing their loan balances go up instead of down. And, um, you know, and, and this is the consequence. And like I said, I mean, I think, I, I, I think when you look at, at why this happened, I think, I think the, the political backlash against what happened in the 1960s really, really triggered this whole spiral. Well, a interestingly, after the 60s, didn't uh, business courses replace humanities courses as the the preference for yeah. many students? Yes. Yes. By the by the by the late 70s, early 80s, business was back on top as the as number one major and, and, and enrollment in enrollment in the humanities plunged, you know, and, and it's it's it stayed kind of low to this day, you know, that um, because because it's inherently understood by students and, and you know and, and by and by their parents you know who are who are helping out to, to pay for these kids to go to college that uh, um, if we're paying this much money for going to college you know you better come out on the other side with something um, 
that, that makes it that makes this money worthwhile or, or, or that pays back your loans if they have to borrow money. Um, you know, and, and it didn't used to be like that. You know, in, in the economy of the seventies. Um, when the, when there were more job job opportunities, including job opportunities for people who didn't have a diploma, pe people felt less pressure. People felt people felt more free to to, to, to you know to study this, the subjects that interest them because they felt that coming in on the other side they would be okay in the job market. But they you know they, they didn't feel this link. And, and 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 this is where I want to get. You mentioned briefly credentialism, you know, which is the idea that. Um, uh, uh, job recruiters started looking for a college diploma as the credential that decided who was the best applicant for a job and uh, um and over the years you've seen a lot of a lot of job categories that going back historically didn't even require a college degree um my my, my profession newspaper reporters is one such job you know you didn't have you, you know going back 60 years you didn't have to have necessarily have a college degree to be a newspaper reporter it, it helps you know it always helps mm -hmm. but you know or or undertaker or things like this you know you, you didn't need degrees for a lot of these uh, kind of certain kinds of white collar jobs right didn't require a college degree and now and now they pretty much all do you're listening to Let It Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm looking for an hourly wage. I went to high school, didn't do great. Still, I gotta make more cash. More education is what I'm looking at. When I get a degree, I will make a bigger salary. So now I've got to see which college is right for me. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Will Bunch. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we're discussing. His book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Will Bunch, who is the national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, a winner of a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting for New York Newsday on a deadly yeah. subway crash at Union Square, uh, author of a number of books on politics, and now the one that we are discussing, which is available now from uh, William Morrow called After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. Um, now, now many people graduate from college uh, carrying huge student loan debts. Uh, so, you, in fact, you write about the problems of Ewan Johnson, who was a fairly poor student in high school, but did well in Temple. Uh, didn't he wind up in deep debt? Uh, yes, um, uh, you and uh, he, he's he's a he's a great guy. He's a, he's a fantastic young man. He's twenty four years old now, and uh, um, he was somebody who, uh, as you said, was not was not a good high school student. Was not motivated. Uh, went went on a visit to to see Temple University. He, he was across the river in South Jersey, and. Um, 
the minute he saw Temple, he just fell in love, and he said this this became his goal. And and this is interesting because you know. Uh, it does kind of play into what goes on in a lot of families because there's so much emphasis on not just going to college, but going to the going to the right college or going to the best college, right? And 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 Ewan embodies that to some degree. Um, uh, for him, the right college he decided was Temple, and he was going to go there no matter what. So he he did spend a semester at community college. He got his grades way up and uh, uh, got accepted into Temple and. Um, Four, four days, four days after he arrived on campus, uh, after they put him in the in the fanciest dorm because that was the only place they had room for him, um, uh, they they told him there was a twelve thousand dollar gap that semester between uh, what he was getting in, in loans and aid and 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 uh, in financial aid and, and what his family could pay, and uh, um, he was he was traumatized, you know, and. Um, they looked in for ways. They looked into ways that he could stay at Temple. And um, his mom signed up for this loan program called the Parent Plus Loan, which has <laughs> become notorious in recent years because many parents who entered this program, uh, you know, there's no, there's no credit checks. It's basically just, you know, to help a family send somebody to college and. Uh, there aren't really limits on how much could be borrowed, and 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 people find themselves falling behind very quickly on these loans. Um, so 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 Ewan did get his degree. He's you know he's a um, in communications. Uh, he's this bright, talented person. Uh, unfortunately, he he personally has thirty thousand dollars in debt under his name, Oof. and his and his mom through the Parent Plus program has one hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt. Which, like I said, sounds crazy, but it's not. It's really not that unusual. Um, and that's a sad and, story. But you tell other kinds of sad stories uh, of a different sort. You tell the stories of Georgie and Josh Redner, who were raised and died in the suburbs just north of Philadelphia. How does how does their story apply to what we're discussing here? I, I told their story because um, I wanted to. I wanted to highlight this research um, that's been done in the last few years. Uh, uh, it's been spearheaded by these two Princeton economists, um, K- Case and Deaton, who've written a couple books now about what they call deaths of despair, which um, refers to the fact that among among the working class in America, and especially the white working class, uh, in the last generation, there's just been a steep increase in, in the suicide rate, uh, in, in drug overdoses, and uh, in deaths due to, due to alcoholism, um, uh, you know, to, to the point where even before COVID, this was becoming a drag on U.S. life expectancy. And um, in their most recent book on the subject, um, Casey Deaton said they were finding that deaths of despair were happening at younger and younger ages, and that um, uh, and the biggest determining factor of who was at risk for this, again, is not having a college diploma. Hmm. Um, so I, I talked to Jackie Redner, uh, a, a very, very nice lady who's willing to tell the story of her two sons, both of whom died at age, who did not attend college, um, both of whom died at age 27, one, one from suicide, um, j- jumped in front of an Excella train uh, on a Saturday morning, and, 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 and the second one died two years later from a drug overdose. And um, Had they wanted that, to go to college? 
Uh, you know, like like any young person, everybody's individual story is complicated. Um, uh, uh, Josh Josh Redner, the one who died of the drug overdose, um, thought he was going to the Coast Guard Academy on a scholarship to wrestle, and then right near the end of his high school wrestling career, he, he suffered a serious knee injury that, that ended his career. And so he didn't get so he didn't get the scholarship, and uh, you know, and and, uh, um, it, it, and actually, it was the um, recovery from that uh, accident when his doctors prescribed him uh, Percocet uh, began his, his slide into drug addiction, um, um, and it's complicated. You know, I, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting how their personal stories fit in, but I also wanted to emphasize that um, uh, their mom, Jackie Rinder, who'd, ac who'd actually been president of the school board in their community in, uh, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, um, uh, you know, she, she did some research and she found that uh, of, of, the, of, the, of the group that went to high school with her two sons, she, she started going through their yearbooks and whatnot, and she found over 100 young people from this uh, middle-class community uh, who died before age thirty, hmm. and, and, and mostly it was mostly it was the things that um, Case and Deaton had written about. Mostly it was suicide and, and drug overdoses. Now you, uh, yeah, you suggest that student debt reform should include a national service like FDR's Civilian Conservation Corps that targets qualified high school graduates to receive quality employment while fostering a broader sense of shared purpose. How would that work? Yeah, well, let me well let me just clarify one thing, uh, which is that I, I don't I don't see that as debt reform per se. I mean, I think I think if we're going to reform debt, I think we need a more comprehensive program with other. Well, you features. said it. I said it should include that. Yeah, right. Uh, what, yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, what I'm saying is, uh, in, in addition to just wiping out people's debts, I don't I don't think that will solve the problem of our young people alone that we need to have other initiatives and 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 one and you know and this is not a new idea you know it's been back and forth for years you know you know bill clinton with americorps and and uh, you know really, really going going back to fdr and his his kind of famous civilian uh, conservation corps and uh, uh, um, uh, you know th this idea of enlisting young people in, in national service that wouldn't wouldn't be military necessarily, but would be civilian projects. You know, like conservation, like like working in schools in disadvantaged communities. You know, like um, uh, you know other 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 projects in in, in underserved communities. And um, I, I think I think this would be fantastic for. The problems that we're facing right now, uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, you know, we 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 put all this all this pressure on eighteen-year-olds and their families to kind of decide their. They think they're deciding their whole life, you know, in terms of getting into the right college and what they're going to major in, or you know, or not going to college and then and then dropping off the grid, as we see with so many of these young people who don't attend college, and um, uh, you know. I would say give them give them this year at age 18 to, to finance them to work on these projects where they can develop their skills. You know, they can get a better sense of what they want to do on the other side, and, and maybe that will help people with their with their college or or career choices. And but the other thing is, you know, and this gets back to what we were talking about at the very beginning about the whole <laughs> the whole idea is America headed for a civil war. You know, um, you know, so so many of us agree. You know, I see survey after survey that. 
you know, right after inflation, people think the biggest problem in America right now is division, you know, people not getting along. And, and yet we don't really talk about how we're going to fix that. And here's something that could help. Uh, you know, this could help by taking people from different communities, you know, taking people from, you know, from Long Island and from Youngstown, Ohio, and, 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 and from, you know, you know, from, from Bed-Stuy and, and, and from, uh, uh, you know, South Texas and um, mixing them up and, and, and sending them, sending them away for a year to work with other people who aren't like them and who have different, you know, have different backgrounds and different, different philosophies. And um, um, because, you know, this, this happened in, in the army, in the military, right? During World War II and, and Korea, uh, you know, again, you know, with all the caveats about, gender and segregation and all that, but people from different backgrounds were, were thrown together to, to fight World War II. And um, it absolutely increased, I think, understanding and tolerance of like different kinds of people. Um, whereas I think to live in America in 2022, you're very siloed in your own community or people, or people like yourself, um, you know, and, and there's certain types of people that you're not interacting with. Well, we were poor. We were poor, and I went to, we all went to college. Uh, by the way, my guess is Will Bunch, his book, After the Ivy Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics, How to Fix It from William Morrow. This is WBAI and WBAI.org, streaming live at uh, one of the central themes of the book is the tension between liberal education and careerism. Um, how has that played out against the backdrop of partisanship in this country? Uh, it's, it's interesting. You know, um, uh, let, let me give you quickly the example of, of Scott Walker, who you remember as the governor of Wisconsin from 2010 to 2018, um, you know, very, very much, you know, Scott Walker was very much an acolyte of Ronald Reagan. You know, he, he had a picture of Reagan in his college dorm room. Um, and he, he didn't finish, uh, Scott Walker didn't finish college, by the way. He dropped out of Marquette to take a job and he, you know, and, and he kind of embodied this conservative ideal that, uh, you know, that maybe you don't really need college. And, um, when he became governor, uh, he was kind of at the vanguard of a whole generation of Republican governors we're seeing across the country who, uh, you know, are reducing reducing state funding for, for public universities, um, uh, are, are, are starting programs like going after tenure because they feel that um, college professors are too liberal and, and, and this is a way to, to get back at them. Uh, and, and he did all of those things, but he also took it one step farther, which is he... Uh, looked at the looked at the kind of very well known charter for the uh, mission mission statement for the um, University of Wisconsin, which said that the university's ultimate mission was to search for the truth, which you know is the core of this liberal education idea, right? And um, uh, his administration uh, started working on a new mission statement that was going to say um, the university the university's mission is workforce development, and I mean to me that whole episode embodied the, the, the different philosophy and, 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 and how that's come to dominate the conservative movement. Um, you know, as, as it happened, there was, there was an outcry. You know, a lot of people still wanted to at least cling to the idea that college is for liberal education, and, and, and Scott Walker had to back down from, from that. But, um, you know, more broadly, you know, you're seeing it rise up again. I mean, right now you're seeing a lot of drama in states like Florida and states like North Carolina, you know, over these issues like tenure, like, like accreditation of universities um, uh, that, 
you know, governors like Ron DeSantis of Florida are, are declaring higher education and, and education in general, frankly, as the enemy. Um, and uh, uh, on and the other hand, over the past few years, we've had a flurry of violent mass shootings committed by men in the 18 to 21 to 22 year old uh, age bracket. And I don't remember hearing that any of them were attending colleges. No, no, no. <laughs> That's a great point. And, and, and that gets to what I talk about in the book about people, people turning 18. You know, I, 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 call, I call this group the, the left out, you know, the, the people who, uh, you know, grow up in these grow up in these small towns, thinking from an early age that the college path isn't for them. Uh, but then, but then, when they leave high school, uh, you know, get their high school degree, they they disappear. They go into these rabbit holes of, of uh, you know, internet addiction, or uh, you know, while, while they're working at, at, at the local warehouse or, or at a fast food restaurant. And um, uh, you know, I, I I read the profiles of all these mass shooters, and you know, obviously, mass shooters are, are one small sliver of American society, right? But you look at the you look at their profiles. And these people, you know, it's like, well, they were in high school and they seemed a little troubled and then high school ended and we don't really know what happened to them. You know, these people just seem to disappear for most of us. And then they show up one day with an AR-15 and it's mm. it's really tragic. And and I think, you know, I, I think when people say, well, you know, is, is higher education, you know, with all the things going on in this country, is higher education the most important issue? You know, I, I would look at the connection between educational opportunities or the lack of educational opportunities and things like mass shootings, like the opioid addiction crisis. Well, we have Uh, just we have just a minute or two left. Mm -hmm. So can higher education be fixed? Do you believe college attendance is a public good that government should pay for similar to the public school systems? Uh, I do. You know, I, I think I think there have been some really good ideas floated by the by the likes of Elizabeth Warren, who I think has been a real leader on this issue. Uh, you know, she's she's proposed a wealth tax as, as a way, uh, you know, and using money from that wealth tax to make to make our public universities free. You know, uh, it's not going to happen with this Congress. Uh, no, but uh, uh, you know we need to we need to start a we need to start a national conversation about what's really important in this country. You know, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners would agree with this, but a country that a country that spends ten ten times, or, or, I'm sorry, spends more money on its military than the next ten nations combined, mm. can probably make some adjustments in, in its priorities because. You know what's what's a bigger threat to America right now? You know the, our, our biggest security threat isn't really another Pearl Harbor. It's it's another January sixth. You know, and, and where does January sixth come from? It comes from conspiracy theories. It comes from misinformation. And you know how how much would a how much would a better educated uh, populace you know help prevent QAnon and, and January sixth and, and these things that are and climate change really, denial. Yeah, which we didn't talk about, but is is a huge, huge factor of conservatives rejecting knowledge. You know, it's, this rejection of college became a rejection of knowledge, and 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 the consequences of that have really been disastrous. Alas, we have come to the end of this conversation. Uh, I've been speaking with Will Bunch, whose latest book is After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. And I 
I hope that we've mm-hmm. given people some ideas of, of what we might actually do uh, in the future. Thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, Leonard, it was, it was fascinating. It was great speaking with you. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Gaziah Glow, the executive producer of London Thopate at Large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep-dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you can get your podcasts. You can check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Not just this show, this whole station, because we've been going through a pretty rough time recently. The pandemic has not helped. Money has been tight with a lot of people. And we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution of whatever level they're comfortable with by calling... 212-209-2950 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. Uh, we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else or at least not in the depth that we're doing it. And as I mentioned earlier, Anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing after the ivory tower falls, how college broke the American dream and blew up our politics and, and how to fix it by Will Bunch. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. Um, that To do that, you promise uh, $10, $15, $20, whatever amount you feel comfortable giving on a monthly basis, and it allows us to be able to plan for the future. And we'll say thank you uh, if you do that for $10 a month or more uh, with some perks, including a WBAI tote bag. So uh, either way, I, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants like so many other public radio stations do, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on this show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that is 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope that you can join us again on Monday for our next show. Until then, have a great weekend.